If you have your Bible with you today, I'd like you to open with me to the book of Isaiah, if you would. Isaiah chapter 7, back in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 7, and we will begin in verse 1 and read down through verse 16. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 1. And today I want to talk to you a little bit about the virgin birth of Jesus. The virgin birth. Now I'm going to do something that I don't know that I've, I don't think I've ever done. I don't think I've even heard a preacher do this, and I've been in church all my life. Um, I've, I've preached on the virgin birth. I've heard sermons on the virgin birth, and I've heard them out of Isaiah 7. I've preached them out of Isaiah 7. But usually, when we preachers preach the virgin birth, we look at verse 14, and for good reason, because that's the actual prophecy that Matthew quotes as being fulfilled in the birth of Christ, and that's all that we talk about. And we don't ever look at the verses uh, that, that precede verse 14 and, or the verses that come after verse 14. And so we don't look at it in its context. And, and what I do sometimes is I don't just, whenever I read these things, like these, sometimes the, the New Testament will quote an Old Testament passage and I'll go back and I'll look at that passage. And there, there may be like a verse that they reference, but then I look at the other verses and sometimes I look at it and I'm like, well, I'm not, how, how, does, how does that fit? I mean, how does it all fit together? Because... You know, verse, verses 1 through 13 obviously come before verse 14. And, and so sometimes you, you look at it and you kind of scratch your head because it sometimes raises questions. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at verse 1 all the way down through verse 16. And I want us to look at what, um, what this would have heard or how this would have sounded to Isaiah's first hearers and see what it has to say to them. And then we can apply it and see what it has to say to us. Now, if you found Isaiah 7 and are able to, I'd like you to stand in honor of God's Word, and we'll pick up in, um, in verse 1. It says, Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. When, when, it, when it was reported to the house of David, saying, The Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of the people shook as trees of the forest shake with the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go, now, go out now and meet Ahaz, you and your son uh, Shear Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, Take care and be calm. Have no fear and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin of Aram and the son of Remaliah. Because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has planned evil against, it, against you, saying, Let us go up to Judah and terrorize it, and make for ourselves a breach in its walls, and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Now within another sixty-five years Ephraim will be shattered, so there is no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you, uh, if you will not believe, you surely will not last. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord, God, the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men, that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and, will, and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. 
He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before, you, before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Thank you. You may be seated. Now there are three things I want you to see in our text today. The first is the situation. The first is the situation. Chapter 7, if you look back at verses 1 and following, you'll see some names and events that are not familiar to us. And sometimes, and I would dare say many times, whenever we read the Bible, especially when we get into some of those names and some of those places, our eyes kind of glaze over, don't they? I mean, it's, it's, it's one thing when we read the, the, the genealogy, so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and sometimes we just breeze down through it, and we just kind of, okay, 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 and just give me, to the, give me to the good parts, right? But, but when we read in these narrative portions, um, uh, things like uh, Remaliah and Pekah and, and Aram, and, and, and we read it, and we just don't, we don't even try to figure it out. Now, I'm not going to ask you if that's the case, because I know that that's the case. We, we, we look at it, we, we're like, okay, that, something happened here, I don't know what, but just, just let's get on to the part I do understand. Realize, when, when, you read these, when you read these passages, there are a lot of events that happen that are recorded in more than one place. So, for instance, First and Second Kings talk a lot about the kings of Judah and Israel. First and Second Chronicles records a lot of the same stuff. Not exactly the same stuff, they're uh, additional information. Also, while those kingdoms are, are happening, while those people are reigning, the, the, the prophets that you read, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and all them, they had their ministries during those kingdoms. And so a lot of the things that you read about are, are recorded in First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and the prophets as well. And so when you put all those things together, you can get a pretty good idea about some things that are happening. But when we read in Isaiah chapter 7, we read about all these people in all these places, and our minds just kind of shut off. So I'm going to try and give you a picture, a situation, to help you understand what on earth is being talked about. Okay, so when you, when you look at verses 1 and following, remember, just, just kind of put that on hold. Remember, way back whenever Israel started, Saul was the first king. David came on. He was kind of the ideal king. He was a man after God's own heart. His son Solomon uh, reigned after him. It was the golden age of Israel. Everything was great. Solomon was wise. But after Solomon, the kingdom of Israel divided into two. Now, Israel wasn't like this. It was more of a a north-south oriented kingdom. And so it divided into two. The northern kingdom were ten tribes, sometimes called Israel, sometimes, like in our text today, called Ephraim, and the southern kingdom of Judah. Okay, ten up here, two down here. So Judah is where all the, the, the kings that descended from David, that's, they're reigning down here in Judah. They're not very good. Israel's even worse. So Judah's down here. Israel's here. Above them, north of them, is Aram. You're more familiar with the name Syria, probably. Syria, okay, so Judah's down here. Northern kingdom of Israel. Above them... Syria or Aram, and to the northeast of them is Assyria. Now, Assyria was a world superpower at the time. And I know I'm, I'm giving you a lot of names. Just stay with me. So Assyria, at that time, was led by a, a, a pretty aggressive king that was going out, and he was conquering all over, people all over the place. And so Aram 
And Israel said, you know what, we need to join forces so we can withstand when Assyria attacks us. Let's get Judah to join our confederation. They tried to get Judah to join. Judah didn't want to do it. And so Aram and Israel attack Judah. They can't beat them, so they withdraw. And then they decide, let's have another go at it. And that's where we pick up in our text, because word gets to Judah and Ahaz that Aram is beginning to assemble forces in Ephraim. So imagine, you are the king of Judah, and you hear that your neighbors to the north are joining forces to attack you again. They, he, he knows that a siege is coming. And so, uh, you remember, a siege is not like a direct uh, a frontal assault. What they would do is they would surround the area and cut off food and water and just starve you out. And so Ahaz goes to the water supply, this conduit of the upper pool, to check out their water situation. And so um, Aram and, and, um, and Israel, they're going to try and attack Judah again and basically try and expand their territory and put in a puppet king, this son of Tabeel, that they can manipulate and he'll join forces with them to fight against Assyria when they come to them. Okay, is there, are, we, are we staying together on it? Okay, so that's where, that's where we pick up in our text. Ahaz is in a bad spot. Now, the right thing for Ahaz to do when all this bad stuff is happening, he's got all these forces aligned against him, the right thing for him to do is to seek the Lord. But he doesn't do that. Ahaz is a bad king. He's a wicked king. Instead, what he decides to do, and, and at this point he's still considering it, later he does it, He's considering paying a whole bunch of money to Assyria to come attack Aram and Israel to keep them from attacking Judah. Okay, so he, he's, he's, gonna send, he's wanting to send a whole bunch of money up there so Assyria will attack these guys and so they won't attack Judah. And so he's trying to figure all this out. He's, he's working through his mind, in his mind, what to do. And so in verse 3... God sends uh, Isaiah to Ahaz with a message. And I want you to look at the message that's given. He says, don't be afraid. I'm going to summarize. Don't be afraid of these two kings. They're like stubs of wood. They've been, bur- they've been burned in the fire. They're, they're smoldering. They're smoking. They're getting ready to go out. They don't have power. They're, they're not going to be able to, to, to endanger you. I'm going to take care of things. Their time is short. Yes, they're threatening to come in. Yes, they, they want to add land to their kingdoms. Yes, they want to set up this, this, this puppet king. But I'm going to take care of it. You don't have to worry about them. In fact, in verse 8, within 65 years, Ephraim, the northern kingdom, it's going to be so shattered they won't even be able to be called a kingdom anymore. So if that's the case, if they're not going to endure, you have nothing to worry about. Now this is just an historical side note. But within 65 years, that's exactly what happened because Assyria, they had deported people out of Israel a couple of times. And the last time, they not only deported people, they not only took people out of Israel, but they also brought foreigners into Israel that populated the area and so diluted the, the, the population there that Israel could never assemble as a nation again. still hasn't happened. So that, that was all prophesied back some 700 years before the time of Christ. So, God's saying, don't trust in man, 
Don't go to Assyria. Don't give them money. Don't, and, and, and even at this point, I, uh, Ahaz may have even already have given the order to pillage the temple. What they did is they took out a whole bunch of money, the treasury. They took out all this gold and, and stuff out of the, the, the temple of God and sent it up to Assyria uh, for help. But he says, verse 9, this is all, that you don't have anything to worry about, but if you will not believe, you will not last. Don't rely on uh, Assyria, rely on God. Now, that's the situation. Next, I want you to see the sign. Look at the sign. So, so he's, given this, he's given this word of encouragement. He says, don't worry about it. Trust in God. Don't trust in man. Don't trust in Assyria. Then the Lord, verse 10, spoke to, to Ahaz again, saying, ask for yourself a sign. This is something that God typically doesn't do in the Bible. But he said, you pick it. Anything you want. You name it. I'll do it. And the purpose was to, 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 to show them that God was speaking to them. This was an attesting miracle. He, he was saying, you say anything in, in heaven above, on earth beneath, maybe even under the earth. You know, he's saying, you pick it. Part the Red Sea, done. Raise the dead, done. Some astronomical sign, done. God says, you pick it. Ahaz, instead, now if, if it was me, I don't know what I'd say. But Ahaz, he tries to be all pious acting. He says, I'm not going to tempt God. I don't want to tempt God. And that is, that is a biblical thing, right? You don't, don't, don't tempt the Lord your God. But the thing is, he wasn't concerned about tempting God because he was disobeying God, which is a temptation for God to smite him, right? I mean, he says, God says, give me a sign. Or pick a sign. I'll, I'll do it. And Ahaz says, I'll not, I'm not going to pick a sign. I'm not going to tempt God. The issue wasn't that he didn't want to tempt God. The issue was he didn't trust God. Because, like I said, he, he, may, he may even have already given the order to pillage the temple to pay the Assyrians. He says, I'm not going to do it. And God says, too bad. I'm going to do it then. You don't want to do it? I'll pick the sign. Now look at, look at what it says in, in, uh, in verse 14. Here is the sign. Now, now what is a sign? A sign is something that's obvious. When you go driving down the road and you're trying to find some place, have you noticed that the signs face you? If they don't face you, you're not going the right direction. Why is that? Because a sign is something that's obvious that's pointing you the direction you're supposed to go. If you're driving to Branson, you see all kinds of signs on the billboards. When you're driving through town, you see all kinds of signs saying this way to this, this location, you go this way to this restaurant, here's the road sign, so on and so forth. Because a sign is something that's out in the open, it's obvious, and it, it's, it's, it's leading the way. And so what this is, it's an attesting miracle in this case. It's something obvious, something amazing. This is not something that's going to be hidden. He's saying this is something that's right out in front of your face. Look at what it says. We're going to work our way bit through bit by bit through this, through this verse. Verse 14. Behold. Look. Pay attention. That's what this means. This is something important. He's saying fix your attention on what is getting ready to come out of my mouth. Behold. A virgin will be with child and shall bear a son. He says a virgin. Now we don't have an English word that exactly captures the idea of the Hebrew word that's used. Because 
when we say a virgin, we mean something specific. We mean somebody that's not had sexual relations with somebody. That was implied in this word, but it wasn't, but it wasn't required by this word. This, the word that's used is alma. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mature young woman. It's, it's somebody that is unmarried. And the implication then is she is a virgin. Now listen, you can be young and not a virgin. You can be a virgin and not young. But this is very specific. It is a young, mature, unmarried woman. The implication is that is a virgin. Now the, the person in question is evidently somebody that was known to Ahaz because it doesn't say in the original language, it doesn't say a virgin, it says the virgin. Somebody specific. Somebody that Ahaz would know about. The virgin, the, the, this woman that was unmarried at the time of the prophecy, would soon marry and give birth to a child, not just seen child, a male child. And she shall call his name, verse 14, Emmanuel. Emmanuel. That's not to say that that was the name that's on the birth certificate. That was a title. Just like when you read in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, uh, the, Behold, a, a, a child shall be born to us, a son shall be given to us, and and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and the government shall rest upon his shoulder, and, and so on and so forth. Those were not all names that, like, when you, when, you, when you saw the Messiah, you didn't say, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You didn't address him that way. Those were titles that talked about his character. This Emmanuel is a title. And so, so this, was, this, was a, this was an attesting miracle, a sign that said, God is with you, God is for you. You can be confident that He will protect you. God is with you, here's the sign, here's the mark of it. Now, we have the situation, we have the sign. Finally, I want you to see the Savior. I want you to see the Savior. Because I, I've spent a lot of time up to this point talking about all the stuff that's building up to verse 14. And so then when we look at it, and then when we read in the New Testament, it's applied to Jesus. We might look at it and say, huh? How, how, did, how did we get from that to Jesus? I mean, maybe when we look at this, we say, well, I, before today, didn't understand the situation. I, I didn't really get it. Maybe we looked at it and say, well, um, does this mean that there were two virgin births? Um, if, if this was an encouragement to them and it only speaks to Jesus, how would it have been an encouragement 700 years after the fact? Like if somebody was living in the 1300s, that'd be like them saying that something's going to happen in 2022 and it'll be an encouragement to you today. That, that, wouldn't, be, that wouldn't make any sense. So, so how do we put this all together? Well, when the New Testament writers, and, and there's a lot that can be said about the way they use the Old Testament... But when the New Testament writers take a prophecy, for instance, out of the Old Testament, and they apply it to Jesus, almost always there is an immediate application to the first hearers. That's why when he said, the Lord's going to give you a sign, he doesn't say the Lord's going to give you a sign about something's going to happen 700 years down the road. He said, the Lord's going to give you a sign. This is what's going to happen. There is a fulfillment, but there is a fuller, later fulfillment that's found in Jesus alone. See, in the Old Testament, there are types and shadows. There are things that prefigure 
and foreshadowed the coming of Christ. All the Old Testament sacrifices, certain instances like where, where Abraham offers up Isaac, takes him up on Mount Moriah to, to sacrifice. That is a picture. The father is offering the son. That, those are pictures that point ahead. They're, they're shadows of what we see in, in, in the new in its entirety, in its fullness. And that's, that's what we have happening here. Yes, there was an immediate fulfillment back in Isaiah's day, but there's a, an ultimate fulfillment that's found in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Now listen to the wording out of Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. And I, I want you to, to, to hear the echoes of Isaiah 7. Look, look at what it says. It says, Now the birth of Jesus was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Stop. Here we have a young, unmarried, she's betrothed, they weren't married yet, they were essentially engaged. A young, unmarried woman, a virgin, and the Greek translation has a very specific word that's used here that, that means specifically someone who is sexually pure. That's what's used in, in the uh, text that, that Matthew quotes. So here is his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. So she was a virgin. She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. She became pregnant even though she was a virgin. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from, from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Now I just want to pause here for a second. What did he say they were to call him? Jesus. And yet, Matthew says this is to fulfill what was said through the prophet. They'll call his name Emmanuel. Like I said, Emmanuel is a title. Normally, in, in normal parlance, that would mean God is with us. God is for us. God is on our side. But here it's, it's, it's so much fuller because it's not just God is for us, but God is with us in physical form. The Bible goes on to say, Joseph awoke from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and she called his name Jesus. So here we have a young woman, marriageable age, not yet married, never been with a man. And that is a fulfillment in a much fuller sense of this prophecy out of Isaiah 7. It's also a fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. You remember, that's, we, we looked at that last week where, where God spoke to the serpent and he said that there was one coming, the, the seed of a woman who would, who would crush the serpent's head, would bruise the serpent's head. Jesus was not just, it, it was not just a sign that God is, is for us. He is, Jesus is God literally with us. He is, he is God incarnate. The Bible says the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. If you, know, if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. He is the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. The prophecy was a sign. The ultimate fulfillment is a savior. It's not just God is, going to, is, is with the nation, but rather God has come to seek and to save that which was lost. 
He is the Savior. And Jesus came, the Bible says, that all who would believe on Him may have eternal life. That, that's, that, that's what Christmas is all about. I mean, Jesus had a special birth. He lived a sinless, spotless life. He died a sinner's death. Our sin was transferred to Him as He hung on that tree. And He bore the undiluted, full wrath of God against sin on the cross. Again, that is what Christmas is about. He paid the price. He canceled the debt. He suffered in our place. And now, if you would believe on Him even today, you will be saved. You'll have your sins forgiven. You'll exchange that filthy, polluted garment of sin for the pure righteousness that, 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 that will... You put it on like a robe. I mean, God clothes you with the righteousness of Christ. Your sin will be, the Bible says, removed from you as far as the east is from the west. You'll be cast into the sea of God's forgetfulness. Never be held against you again. And the Bible goes on to say, Therefore, there's, there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, do that today. Why don't you stand with me as musicians come. As you stand, as you bow your heads and close your eyes. You know, nobody looking around. I just want to I just encourage you to, in the quietness of this time, seek the Lord. Have you ever put your faith in Him? That's the whole reason Jesus came. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He was born that He might die. He took the sin that, we, that He didn't deserve that wasn't his own. He died the death that you and I deserve on the cross. He bore the infinite wrath of God. That all who call upon the name of the Lord would be saved. That their sin would be forgiven. That they would be made right with God. That they would be reconciled to Him. That they would go to heaven when they die. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have provided a way of salvation, that you provide a way of escape. And God, we get so wrapped up in all the frivolities of, um, of Christmas, life. We go so wrapped up in schedules, practices of work and just all the things and God we can we know it's it's a danger to be active to constantly be in motion but to be far from you
Lord, I ask that even today as we uh, contemplate this, this miraculous birth of Christ, that you'd help us to draw near to you. Lord, if there's somebody who doesn't know you in a personal saving way, I pray that you would save them today. Lord, for those of us who do know you in that way, God, we join together and say thank you. Thank you for your amazing grace that we do not deserve. Lord, we just ask that you would do your will in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen.